they're always like, oh my God, run, run. So you're trying to grab them and they're running for their lives, literally. And then you have to pin them down and grab them and they go, hey, run, run. Episode 55. The second. The world famous Tadpods Leggy Podcast. Uh, I'm Shirley Manson. Yeah, I've forgotten who that is. Lead singer of Garbage, played Weaver in the Terracon Chronicles. <laughs> it's going well so far. Okay, and you cool. say... Uh... I don't know. What did I say last time? I didn't say oh, anything. Oh, this is probably word for word what I said last time. It is. It is yeah. so far. Right. First of all, drinking game okay. is in effect. <laughs> um, let's take it easy this time. Uh, Two-minute rule is in effect. We should, should we say to start with what we think we shouldn't say? Think we should we need to say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on then. Well, so we recorded this... We've recorded this episode once before, about, what, a week ago? Mm-hmm. And the recording was no good. Something okay. was wrong with the audio, so we couldn't use it. And so we're having to record the whole episode again. So what we're doing right now is literally word-for-word word rerun, apart from this bit right now, is a word-for-word word rerun of the previous. Uh, we consider that a full-dress rehearsal. So this is episode 55. Uh, right, we'll start with FU. Very briefly. If you, Darren. If you, John. It wasn't. It wasn't when I was talking. I can't remember when this was. So, so long ago. But it was uh, a mention of. I accidentally said Dmitry Bayanov, and I meant no. I said Dmitry Bogdanov, mm-hmm. who's an artist who's got a lot of stuff on Wikipedia. When I was actually talking about Dmitry Bayanov, who's a Russian cryptozoologist. I've got no idea what context this is in, but it was a correction I needed to make. So we've been. Have we done? Have we done one since the summer? One or two? No. This is the problem when it's so long between. This is not a criticism of anyone. It's just the way it works. I've had building work. John's had building work going on nearby. Um, we've been uh, just through the whole of conference season. So we spoke about conference season last time. So yeah, uh, three or four conferences. Uh, we, well, let's talk about Tezucon. That's the best one. Yeah. The most important one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Tezucon. Yep, go ahead. Yeah. Well, Tezucon held on 1st of October at the London Wetland Centre. It's the last one that will be held at the London Wetland Centre. So if you didn't go there, well, you missed out because we've maxed out the venue. Just have too many people coming along. Yep. Um, it was it was the best one so far. We had, uh, well, it was a mix of everything as, as like the previous Tezucons. Um, we had uh, talks on... Uh, Bears in Britain, obscure frogs from the Indian Ocean. Um, a, amazing talk by John Hutchinson on the, the diversity of kneecaps and their function in tetrapods. Um, me on well, dinosaur sex wars. Bob Nichols brought along his life-size model of a Cetacosaurus, and that was basically the star of the show and formed the focus of the paleo art workshop that John and Bob ran, and that was brilliant. Yeah, everyone made little plasticine replicas of... Uh, I mean, most people that follow us would have seen photos of this online, right? Mm. Little plasticine cytocosaurs around the the big... Well, it's not very big, is it? Cytocosaurus, not a very big animal. Um, yeah. yeah. 
but comparatively large mothership of a Sidicasaur. Mm. Mm. Yeah, went really well. Um, yeah, it was really good fun. So next year we've, we're we looking at a venue. We've got one sort of lined up. Um, holds more people. It's going to be even bigger and even better. Paleo Art Workshop's going to be... I've got a really good idea for the Paleo Art Workshop. So, you know... Hopefully it'll be even better than this year. Yeah. 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 So we should say that we are, the venue will almost certainly be central London. What does this mean for parking and stuff? We'll talk about that later. But, um, <laughs> no idea what it means for yeah. parking. <laughs> well, because it's, it's getting, getting to these places is always something you have to consider. Um, and we're talking about a late October date and uh, something like the 21st of October, I would say, as a pencil date. Yep. But um, we will obviously confirm this in time. It's very early days at the moment, obviously. So besides Tetsukon, which was great, we also had an event called Popularising Paleontology, which was about not popularising paleontology, really. It was about the history of popularising paleontology. And that was good. And John and I both spoke. I spoke about the paleo art meme thing. And what did you do? Uh, why paleo art is so bad. Your paleo art or everyone's paleo art? <laughs> everyone's paleo art. <laughs> it was an interesting talk. They've been filmed, and the ones where the uh, speakers were happy with their presentations will go online, but yours isn't, right? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, God, my talk's terrible. No one's going to see this. Um, whereas I thought my talk was filmed quite well. Well, I screwed up my slide deck and... Ah, uh, yes, yeah, too much of a mess. So, <laughs> see, I didn't notice because I missed most of your talk. Yeah, I was sleeping, yeah. sleeping on the toilet or something. Um, and well, dinosaur, the dinosaur. We've also just had a thing called Dinosaur Days event, which is also at the uh, Wild Wildfowl and Wetland Centre in in, in uh, West London. And uh, yeah, that was all right, I suppose. That was uh, there was there was a day of talks, which was okay. Good. Yeah, but a uh, pretty uh, uh, invasion of the toddlers on the. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it was. It was. Yeah, it was designed for children. It was sold as an event for kids, and uh, yeah, I'm sure if you had, well, if you took kids along to it, it was good for them. But in terms of the sort of stuff that most of us do, uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't so great. But uh, uh, well, we had a good social time, didn't we? Spent a lot of time in the pub. <laughs> yep. Um, all right, uh, that's that will do for news from the world of uh, Darren and John. Um, oh, my Natural History Museum dinosaur book. I think I spoke about that last time, didn't I? So that's out now. Uh, Darren Nation, Paul Barrett, published by the Natural History Museum here in the UK and published by the Smithsonian in the United States. And yep. um, it's doing quite well. Quite a big shot, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, Despite the look of the cover, everyone hates the cover with this like roaring monster. But um, don't judge a book by its cover, as they say. Yep. The internal illustrations are not like that, right? There's lots of good stuff no. in them. Yeah, yeah, it's it's got it's got a list of illustrations by people who are generally regarded as worthy in our community, including even yourself. Oh wow! And <laughs> I'm so worthy. Yeah. Others uh, also like. 
well, Emily Willoughby, Julius Satoni, Mark Witten, uh, a bunch of others. And check out reviews online. And, and even better, why not consider buying the book? It's not very expensive. It's like £20 here in the UK. And so about, I, it's about a buck, you know. Oh, what? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, we made this joke last time about. Well, thanks, Brexit. Good work. Yeah, good work. Written. Christ. Um, okay, let's let's move on immediately to Cash for Questions. Cash for Questions. Which I don't have open. Okay. Nor do I have the, uh, what do you call it, the itinerary very open either. No. Oh, well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we've, we've done we've done the un- itinerary very um, it's time to do cash for questions let's do the same ones as last time yes yes seen us we rehearsed the answers on this so annoying <laughs> okay we could not do the ones we did last time and move no no no, no okay we okay. should we okay should. all right so I'll just start at the top here right okay Isabel Walsh yep okay uh, this question. We should we should say in our previous attempt to do the, to to answer these questions, we I think we answered about four questions from Isabel. So <laughs> there was a lot of discussion of Isabel's question. <laughs> yeah. So maybe some of it will be covered here again. Let's see. Okay. So uh, <laughs> Isabel asks, would you physically fight each other for an eccentric billionaire Patreon? Who would win, and what would you both do with unlimited funds? If appropriate, I'd also like to hear about Douglas, the cutest, and the world of show guinea pigs. Okay, so we're yeah. going to start with the first part of the question then. Although they might be related, you know, maybe, you know, I'd buy the world's showiest guinea pig. <laughs> shall, I t- shall I tell you how we answered this last time? First of all, who would win in a fight? Yep. Uh, and your answer was me because yeah. I'm the biggest and strongest, the well, most more sexy, of a, charismatic, more of a caveman, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or plesiomorphic. Then, when it comes to uh, who would w- would you physically fight each other, the answer is definitely yes. John is taking some blows to the face for that million dollars or million pounds, whatever, because it's I, only fair. A billionaire, I think we have to assume it's a billion. Yeah, because cause like, the, the, the justification for this is, y- would you endure, would not you, talking to John, would one endure pain for something like a billion dollars, mo- a billion pounds, whatever? Most of us would uh, say, yes, you would endure some degree of pain. And uh, so I would be prepared to be hurt for a, for a, for a, for a billion, a billion. Um, so therefore, yeah, I think someone should should uh, be prepared to let themselves be beaten up for that amount of money. So, Although, so I'll just be clear to any billionaires out there that are considering this: I'd rather take the money without having to fight anyone. But if just so a we're fight clear. In it. No, okay. If I'm going up against someone that would that would well outclass me, I'd pro- as long as it didn't permanently damage me, um, then uh, yeah, billion. Uh, yeah, let's let's go for it. And then what would you do? What would you both do with unlimited funds, Isabel asks? Yeah. Well, my answer is really terrible because I don't know. Because I think about winning the lottery a lot, uh, which is strange since I don't ent- enter the lottery. And I think the reason I think about it so much is because I have no idea what I'm going to do with the money. Yeah. <laughs> we so the answer I gave to this last time, <laughs> I should stop, I should stop mentioning that. Let's forget because people don't yeah. know it's not relevant. It's not relevant. It's not relevant. It just adds adds a slight sense of te- uh, yeah a tedium to answers. Um, well, think of a different answer then. 
Well, <laughs> the, okay, the boring stuff. The boring stuff I would do, like you know, bigger house, kids through university, and all that stuff. My my wife wouldn't have to work. Every life would be better. But okay, buy lots of books. But in terms of like a billion, okay, there's this. But this is the thing because the questions I now come up with, I've already got the answers to because you knew them and I didn't. The thing okay, is, no, I'm that's saying, good. That's good. Okay, well, it was like, would you? What I discussed the previous recording of this is would you be able to reform an entire country by like giving a small amount of money to everyone and to stop them relying on certain resources or killing certain animals and stuff and the general outcome of that having looked into it a little bit is no <laughs> even the even the smallest poorest country a billion pounds or a billion dollars isn't enough to make an impact of that kind so then the other thing that i would probably do is either set up some kind of trust in a, 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 an, an impoverished kind of poor part of the world where you can basically train uh, local people to um, sort of know how to uh, conserve, manage and study fauna and, and ecosystems and then basically start a kind of grassroots conservation body and hope to reform places that have really got you know, they've got a tremendous biological wealth, but it's being exploited by people from other countries or it's not being looked after or it's being, you know, Chinese eat, eating. I'm thinking of Chinese people eating, eating pangolins, that sort of thing. Um, or buy up a huge block of land and then conserve it and uh, and manage it and study it as well with uh, with people on the, the, the ground, that sort of thing. So some sort of like charitable long-term charitable trust that hopefully hopefully sort of you know sends out feelers and changes the the way people there actually can live because because uh-huh. we we know that all these conservation products you can chuck as much money as you want to conservation but it's not going to make any difference if people are still starving and need to make a living you, you yeah. know you're not going to care if a panda's endangered if you're starving hungry you know that sort of thing so yeah, but answer, but there is that. Uh, I forget the name of it, but there's a, well, there's a idea out there that you can buy up all the biological hotspots. You know, the land the biological hotspots are on, and it doesn't cost that much in terms of the world economy. Thirty-two billion dollars was what I remember mm. hearing about last, wow. which is a drop in the bucket compared to budgets of countries, right? Um, but yeah, so you could you could you could conserve one thirty-tooth of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So me, me, um, yeah, solid gold house, obviously. Really nice top hat, cigar. Wouldn't smoke it. <laughs> uh, you know, some missiles. You know, underground lair type thing under my solid gold house. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Shiny shoes. <laughs> Shiny shoes. Really nice monocle. <laughs> <laughs> Deplorable cocaine habit. <laughs> yeah, some, okay. Some minions. Some. Yeah, people get confused when you say minions now. Henchmen. Henchmen. Hench people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, Sorry. good answer. Yeah. <laughs> A bat cave. Yeah. Yeah, that sort so. of thing. That sort of thing. Yeah. All right, I think that'll do on that, really. Um,. <laughs> So there you go. So now you know, Isabel. What about uh, Isabel wants to know about Douglas and the world of show guinea pigs? So we own three guinea pigs. Two of them, they're called Finn and Jake. They're what's known as taut and white guinea pigs. Taut 
uh, he's short for tortoiseshell. So the tortoiseshell and white guinea pigs. I originally thought Torton, it was Torton white, as in they come from a place called Torton. I've heard of Taunton in Somerset, but I wasn't aware of a Taunton. Whatever they're not, they're taught. Yeah, and the other one, uh, Douglas, he's a um, uh, he's a Rowan. I've forgotten the specific name of his, like, uh, oh god, Rowan, Rowan guinea pig. They're R- Rowans. They're they've kind of they're they're first sticks out in funny directions. It's arranged in parallel strips, but it projects um, outwards from the body. They're rather, they're rather odd. And they come in bay versions, so like like a light brown or rowan versions, which are uh, kind of a bluey grey. And but all forms of this particular kind of guinea pig. I'm afraid I've forgotten the full name of the breed right now, which is a bit appalling. And I'm not going to Google it. But they have a black head. So Douglas is this distinctive black-headed guinea pig, and he is a uh, winner who's been entered in. Um, uh, yeah, shows and um, uh, as won prizes, cash prizes and certificates and rosettes and stuff. Um, he was bought as a as a show guinea pig from a, a lady who uh, has got like a hundred of the things uh, of all kinds of breeds and shows them professionally. The world of show guinea pigs, what does it involve? Well, it involves taking your guinea pig out of its little hutch and of course it doesn't like that, complains and squeals and kicks and scrabbles and stuff. We, went, we discussed all this before about what stupid pets guinea pigs are <laughs> and uh, how uh, they, they never, they're never like, they never seem, well, okay, I haven't had guinea pigs for very long, but do they get to the phase where you put your hand in and they come up to your hand and like walk in your hand like a cat would or a hamster would? No, they're always like, oh my God, run, run. <laughs> so you're trying to grab them and they're running for their lives, literally, and then you have to pin them down and grab them and they go, and, and uh, anyway, so you do that. You take them inside, and they're calm once you pick them up, of course. And then you have to like clip their claws and clean them and shampoo them and like scrub their back end and everything. And um, then put them in a little box with clean hay or clean straw, or whatever. And um, <sighs> terrible, terrible case. animals. Yeah. And then they're put in little display cases display like like a grid like 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 pigeon shows you mm-hmm. know put guinea pig shows rows and rows and rows of guinea pigs in their different breeds and then there are special guinea pig people who come and vet them so how much have they um you know screwed up the anatomy of guinea pigs to make them show guinea pigs yeah it's they're not that different from wild cavies really yeah. their their ancestors they've just got fancier hair and they're a bit bigger some yeah. of them are quite big you know some of them, I, okay Rough estimate, I'm going to say a wild one is probably like, say, 700 grams, whereas the biggest captive one is probably like one and a half kilos. So, like, say, a wild one is like (laughs) that kind of size, (laughs) and the biggest domestic ones are like that kind of size. Uh Does that help? (laughs) Yeah, that's really helpful for podcasting. So, from a small bun size to a larger bun. (laughs) (laughs) Such descriptiveness. Um, and uh, there oh. are some amazing guinea pigs. Uh, the the several shows I've been to, and our friend Julie, who breeds them professionally, the, the I've photographed all the breeds. There's there's some that are just nuts. There's one I can't remember what it's called. It looks like Donald Trump's hair. So it's got like a massive centre party, <laughs> and then these long flowing kind of brightly yellowish, uh, yeah, hairs. Really weird. I've eaten uh, guinea pig. Yeah, good for you. Out of spite. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. 
<laughs> so hungry. In Peru, right? In Peru, yeah. It was um it, it tasted quite nice, but uh so I was eating it with a knife and fork and um and I was, you know, picking out bits of meat. They're a bit bony. They're not like, you know, domesticated food chickens are obviously completely different, right? They're not like that. They're they're quite bony, like wild animals probably are. But um, so I was picking out the little bits of meat that you can get out of it, and the restaurateur came over and said, "No, no, no, that's not how you eat guinea pig. Let me show you. Let me show you. Yeah." And he cut it into quarters, and he says, "Okay, now you pick it up by the little paw, and you eat it like chicken, right?" And so I did that, and I put it right next to my nose, and it smelled like sort of fried dead rat. <laughs> <laughs> There is a so I put it back down and continued eating it by night with knife and fork. Yeah, I, I hate that people telling me how to eat things. I've had that happen in restaurants. Now that's that's finger food. No, it's not. I'm not eating with my fingers. Leave me alone. I well, I think it might be more efficient way to eat guinea pig because, frankly, I was probably wasting a lot of it, right? Mm. By trying to pick it apart with a knife and fork. Oh, so what this person was actually saying is, you need some meat on your bones, son. Here, munch yeah. down on this. Eat this properly. Eat this properly. <laughs> and of course, they come. The way they come is sort of flattened and fried, deep fried. I think. Yeah. They've still got their head. <laughs> so it's just sort of this splayed-out guinea pig on its back with its head. Now, I got this vague impression that Isabel doesn't want us to talk about the eating of guinea pigs. So, <laughs> <laughs> but so thanks for that. Valuable aside. More bang for your buck. Yeah. Okay, I think that'll do. So, yes, we would fight each other physically for an eccentric billionaire Patreon. Hint, hint. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I will be blogging about the show guinea pig, the world of show guinea pigs. And I just just, uh, googled Douglas the guinea pig again, and it's still not there. You've got to get some photos of Douglas up online. All right, well, he's on my Twitter... um, picture oh. thing okay okay all right next cash question <laughs> oh okay yep well we're going in order <laughs> so this is one this one's from adam dutton oh this one <laughs> yep <laughs> have, to a good question. have to do it again okay yeah. i want to know about hot cloaca on cloaca action is being a goddamn sexual tyrannosaurus all it's cracked up to me is Hemi the great right that dinosaur sex led to nothing? What is the kinkiest thing we can derive about Jurassic love? Might a Triceratops find interesting <clears throat> ways to use its horns when it gets the horn? Discuss most seriously how much can we know? So, how much can we know about dinosaur sexy Reproductive action? efforts. Darren. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, like the references in there, Adam... References to uh, one of Jesse Ventura's lines from Predator. Emmy the Great is a singer, I think, who wrote a song about relevant to dinosaur sex. So, who hasn't? The main, Darren, who hasn't? Indeed, um, the main there's there's a Twitter account called Dinosaur Sex, and every time I I do hashtag Dinosaur Sex, his stuff always. Anyway, um, so the main approach to this entire subject uh, comes from phylogenetic bracketing which will be familiar to many of you and to those of you that's, that that are not familiar with this imagine a family tree in front of you arbitrarily imagine the youngest animals on the right 
Now, let's say we've got the dinosaur family tree. Somewhere on the left, we've got the line branching off that leads to crocodiles, alligators, and their relatives. And somewhere on the right, we've got the line branching off that leads to birds. Extinct dinosaurs are somewhere between those two lineages. If we have a feature that's common to the crocodile line and common to the bird line, then we can infer that it would probably be present in the fossil dinosaurs. That's called phylogenetic bracketing. So when it comes to sexual organs and sexual behavior, what is shared by crocodilians and kin and birds, right? And the answer is uh, basic things like the presence of... Uh, now, now, this is complicated by the fact that within birds, there's, there's some diversity. So the bird branches that split off first, they've got a different anatomy from some of the younger bird groups. So in the bird family tree, the, young, the older bird branches include the ratite, so that's ostriches, rheas, etc., and waterfowl or wildfowl and game birds. Those are some of the older lineages. And the members of those older lineages... They already have a single oviduct as opposed to paired oviducts in females. So they're producing, uh, they're producing and um, shelling and stuff one egg at a time, not two, which is the typical condition for reptiles, which is present in crocodilians. Um, those older bird lineages, males have uh, penises, which is also the case in crocodilians. So. Based on that information, we would infer that in fossil dinosaurs, um, did they have a single oviduct or did they have a paired oviduct? That's ambiguous, but this is somewhere where you actually have fossil evidence because we do actually have female dinosaurs that have got two eggs preserved uh, in the inside the body at the same time. So they were producing paired eggs. So they, were, they did have paired oviducts. That was retained probably right up to the base of birds. Males almost certainly had a penis. Females would have had a clitoris as well. That's present in uh, those early diverging birds. Why birds actually switched from having a penis in the early diverging lineages to losing one is a good question. Birds switched to what's called cloacal kissing. So where there's cloaker to cloaca action but without a male intermittent organ. And it's a good question as to why they did lose the penis. That is a whole other discussion, however. Let's, let's avoid that now because that will take us off on a tangent. So we discussed it last time and it took us off on a tangent. So what you should actually expect is the extinct dinosaur system to be similar to that of, say, ostriches, similar to that of, say, um, uh, crocodilians. The male sexual organ would be reasonably large, it, the uh, crocodilians and ostriches and ducks are all fairly well endowed. Um, the organ is like a kind of a curving thing with like a uh, often like an expanded uh, tip. It does not have an enclosed tube-like urethra that sperm is transferred along. Instead, there's like a, a dorsal groove and uh, the stuff, the ejaculate runs along the top and there's a sort of yeah. So you're expecting we do expect there to be full-on. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, what the hell? I've got to say, there's, there's going to be full-on uh, penis in cloaca action in order for insemination to occur. There's no reason to think that they wouldn't have done that. The question then becomes, well, the stegosaurus in the room, to use the joke I said last mm. time, uh, is how did these animals, how did these dinosaurs with the awkward body shape, the ones that are particularly big, the ones that are particularly spiky, covered in plates, whatever – really awkwardly shaped ones how did they actually maneuver themselves into position and this is the thing that keeps paleontologists awake at night (laughs) (laughs) because um uh yeah uh, nobody knows the answer there's a couple of different models that have been proposed 
By the way, if you ever hear people say, why don't paleontologists think about dinosaur sex? It's like, haha, idiot. They think about it all the time. They've written whole books on it. There's been like 20 articles written about the mechanics of uh, uh, extinct dinosaur sex. There's a whole book on it. Um, it's been much, much discussed. And there have been several occasions where uh, paleontologists working with artists often have um, – uh, like proposed reconstructions as to how ceratopsians or stegosaurs or whatever might actually mate. How do you get a male stegosaur to successfully uh, form a bond, form a physical union with a, with a female one? Well, um, one possibility is they had particularly large, particularly flexible organs and they didn't need to, to males to mount females from behind. Another one is that females had really weird flexible organs. They had some like big stretchy vulva that could like, you know... <laughs> <laughs> reach over to the side or something <laughs> another one is that it's something weird like females lay down on their side you know there are animals that do that kind of thing uh, habitually not just on the odd occasion for yeah. fun um another one another possibility is that they were parthenogenetic and that they were all self-fertilizing and they didn't actually need to mate sounds ridiculous but it's not impossible given that we know of parthenogenetic reptiles today yeah um what else do i need to say I mean, a lot of the basic stuff that we know from, um, uh, you know, living animals would be uh, assumed to be typical in uh, extinct dinosaurs. I mean, stuff like uh, like bouts of homosexuality, uh, full on rampant lesbianism would be the case in some animals on occasion, uh, the use of tools uh, in masturbation, um, all those things, uh, probably relatively rare, but... Uh, not impossible. And again, remember, none of these things are restricted to super smart mammals or parrots. They're, they're, they're like across the board, you know, there's cases of all kinds of animals engaging in interspecies rape and uh, other uh, minority uh, efforts. So that was a bit of a tangent. I didn't need to say that, did I? Because that's not relevant to hot cloaca on cloaca action. I think it is relevant. Okay. Yeah. Um Yes, I mean, there's yes, the horns and yep, okay. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything more to say on that. Oh, that I guess well, the, the thing is, we just don't know. But so, and um, there's there's a small yeah. amount we can know, and then there's the sexually sexual behaviour amongst living animals is so diverse that you know, and dinosaurs oh, that was no thing. doubt had some novelties. Other thing we discussed last time was the possibility that another thing for weirdly shaped dinosaurs like stegosaurs, spiky ankylosaurs, is uh, <laughs> I, I think I dismissed the idea that the, the penis might have been detachable and moved away on its own, uh, as is the case in some uh, cephalopods. They have a special detachable sex arm. And uh, yeah, because once you get out of uh, tetrapods are pretty samey and conservative in terms of how sperm is transferred but once you look at other groups of animals it's like oh my god <laughs> yeah like the fact that spiders have got like a special sex arm they sort of can carry like they put it in a pocket and bring it out and like stuff it in there during a, the uh, opportune moment and yeah like detachable sex arms and and sperm darts yeah sperm <laughs> I think darts. hey squids. maybe that's what the spikes on stegosaurus are used for well they don't mm. <laughs> <laughs> there's a channel along the bottom of the tail and just tunk. <laughs> well it's ridiculous but stranger things have happened so it should be obvious from this entertaining discussion that um yeah as with as with all discussions of this kind behavior and biology and soft tissues uh our general philosophy is informed by bracketing 
So these things that we think are reliable, but that we, there's just so much we don't know that the for some things the door is open for us uh, speculation, and um, and and we don't really know. But I, I think in I think in general you should expect crocodilian-like or ostrich-like or duck-like uh, reproductive strategies. Uh, not sorry, not reproductive strategies because that implies the whole shebang, the whole like courtship. I just mean the actual act of, um, yeah, the actual act of mating. Um, and and most, despite these these criticisms about you know the size of dinosaurs and the spikiness of some dinosaurs, in general, in general, extinct dinosaurs are no more awkward in shape than modern animals. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't have. We, we've got work showing that, say, even the biggest sauropods can stand bipedally. So I don't really see sauropod mating being a being a big problem. I don't really think I'm not convinced by the arguments they would have to use water to buoy up their weight, which some experts have said. And for things like theropods and uh, ornithopods and stuff, there's no reason why they uh, couldn't um, like. The male would have to put at least some of his weight on the female and would have to get one leg over in order for cloacal opposition to occur uh, properly. But there's just no reason why they couldn't do that, um, really. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's going to be a bit dangerous, but no more dangerous than it is in living animals. And also, uh, modern archosaurs, when people, another thing, people, when they think about in- extinct dinosaur mating, they look at big mammals and in particular um, elephants and rhinos and they're really bad examples because elephants muck around sexually for ages Um, they spend a long time engaged in uh, uh, mating and rhinos do as well rhinos spend like two hours mating (laughs) Uh, the 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 what the rhinos do is the under rhinos are formidably well endowed and um and basically, the, the, the male sort of just walks it in. It walks in. It keeps on going. Walks in, and then they'll stand there for like an hour, an hour and a half. And I think people tend to have that in mind when they think of how sauropods or ceratopsians mate. But again, your analogies here should be crocodilians and big birds. And do they mate like that? No. Their mating is seconds long, seconds long. If you watch crocodilians, and incidentally, it's hard to get the primary information on this because it tends to be edited out of nature documentaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's rarely seen in the wild. It's rarely filmed or photographed, and it's rare to see it in captivity. The animals aren't often that sexual in captivity. But when it has been filmed, and I have substantial uh, number of files provided to me in part by Tim Isles who's very interested in this question uh, a biologist interested in dinosaur reproduction is um, in uh, big birds and in crocodilians it's um, once the actual act of mating occurs it it literally is like they they sort of line up they agree that they're going to mate the female like it's often initiated by the female she like she'll climb on the male's back and stuff and say yeah yeah come on let's go for it baby and he'll get on and then Bam! That's it, and then they depart, then they split. It's like uh, it's not like hours and hours of. Oh, there might be a bit of there might be hours and hours of foreplay and agreeing that the negotiation is going to occur. And uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I just get back to dinosaurs. The only ones that actually seem super awkward to me are stegosaurs. Right? Yeah. Um, even ankylosaurs. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Um, okay. All right, I think that's a that's enough of that. That's enough of that. Now. That's enough of that. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Good question. Yep. Have you got uh, your 
fill of cloaca on cloaca <laughs> action. Okay, so this question is from Patrick Hennessy, and it is, I was wondering if there's any evidence for venom evolution in the fossil record. Uh, venom evolution. Talking about Venom, not the Marvel character. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, where do we start? That, that, whoever that is is not real and doesn't have a fossil record, Patrick. Uh-huh. <laughs> Haven't you seen Spider-Man 2? No. The really bad one. No. Unlike, unlike all the other Spider-Man films. So, okay, so uh, where did we start with this? We, let's start with snakes. So venomous snakes... Um, there are your snakes like your elapids, so that's cobras, crates, sea snakes, and kin, and viperids, so vipers including rattlesnakes and pit vipers, etc. And these animals have erectile fangs, which are canliculate, which means they contain uh, canals or even enclosed tubes, which are used to inject venom. Uh, really kind of uh, hypodermic needle style organs. Um, we have those from the fossil record. But surprisingly, they are the record of these teeth is not particularly long. Uh, we think that the crown snake radiation is mostly a Cenozoic event, mostly happened in the last, say, 50 million years, with the so-called advanced snakes that includes those venomous groups plus their close relatives, they're, they're, this this whole bunch of snakes, they're called colubroids. They mostly seem to be like a Miocene event, so they mostly diversified in the last 20 to 15 million years and more recently. And the oldest evidence, the fossil teeth, indicating venomosity like that of extant lapids and viperids goes back about 15 million years, which isn't actually that long. And we have uh, fangs essentially identical to those of modern lapids and viperids going back that far. I think the oldest ones are actually from Germany, so uh, a European origin. And it's been suggested that the evolution of venomosity in these snakes is linked to the explosion in diversity of small mammals, in particular particular rodents. Now, a few interesting caveats there's this uh, um, there's this suggestion of a super gigantic uh, extinct viper that lived uh, in the Pleistocene of I think North America and uh, that like huge the fang is like like six centimeters seven centimeters long people thought wow there's like a, a 15 meter long super viper that's preying on giant ground slopes or something how that's supposed to happen given the way these animals kill and feed was always a bit weird that giant fang turned out to be from a uh, spider conch, uh, a, uh, an Indo-Pacific mollusk with like finger-like projections around the aperture of the shell. That's a weird, interesting aside, not a snake at all. Mm-hmm. Then um, the distribution of venomosity within squamates, within lizards and snakes, and that's also interesting. So, but why, I discussed this last time, why am I doing it again? Because it's not relevant so much to the fossil side of things. Hey, which number question is this? 106. So I have to go up on the screen. 106. Uh, Oh, I wonder what evidence... Okay, I was going to discuss the whole toxicophora hypothesis and the how widespread venomosity might be within squamates. I'd just say this isn't so much relevant to fossils because there isn't any fossil evidence really relevant to this but let me just say traditionally we thought that venomosity in snakes was limited to those colubroid groups i just mentioned elapids viperids and their close kin it was always known that some back fanged colubroids um snakes like uh, boom slangs and mangrove snakes and and various others 
hognose snakes it was always known that they had venom venom glands like in the back of the jaw not at the front of the jaw they didn't have big erectile fangs it was thought they could deliver venom into wounds um but it was thought this had evolved like independently of the venomosity present in like elapids and viperids yeah but genetics suggests that in actual fact uh, venomosity was like the normal condition for colubroids in which case it could be that all of these like so-called higher snakes, uh, colubroids, all of them are venomous, and that the, most of them have lost it or reduced it. It's not important, but in elapids and viperids, it became super important, and they became more specialised for it. More recently, molecular phylogenies have found um, evidence that um, well, nah, this is two different issues because molecular evidence has got like a new tree for the for squamates in terms of like how they relate to one another people have discovered that various glands squamates snakes and lizards have got a whole bunch of glands in their uh, oral tissues which uh, deliver um you know have some sort of venomous effect and they they've well, basically they've proved to be more widespread than people thought they're present in monitor lizards and gila monsters and kin that was always known but maybe in iguanas and others as well and the molecular uh, biologists they find those groups of lizards to be close to snakes and they reckon there's this big clade that includes all the venomous ones and they call it toxicophora which is the idea that those particular groups with those venom glands are a clade is different from like standard squamate phylogenies but this sorry this i just realized this is a big tangent i should stop there right yeah um elsewhere in animals um there's a whole list of animals that have got tooth grooves which have been suggested to uh, conduct venom so there's fossil selenodons these venomous mammals uh, various other um, members of extinct mammal groups uh, that have got um, uh, uh, tooth grooves now as we discussed in all yesterday's tooth grooves are not necessarily evidence for venomosity so some animals that have got tooth grooves and it's been suggested that they're venomous they might have been venomous but they might well not have been venomous because you look at living animals, there are loads of monkeys with tooth grooves, mm. um, like baboons, mandrills, wakaris, and um, and it's thought in those animals it's more to do with like how good their canines are at puncturing structures, structures as in like fruit and you know uh, plant stems and stuff, and, and how good they are avoiding. Sorry, making noise on the microphone there. Mm. Therocephalians. So outside of mammalia, there's this group of stem mammals called Therocephalians. There's an animal from South Africa called Euchamperzia, which has got tooth grooves and structures that look like venom glands. It's been suggested that that was venomous. And 2015, a second venomous, allegedly venomous Therocephalian called Ichibengops, I think. Ichibengops. Yeah, sounds right. Itchy Bengops. The name means Scarface. But a second venomous Therocephalian was published, suggesting that venomosity was maybe kind of widespread in these this predatory group of stem mammals. And then also in stem mammals, or no, no, not stem mammals, also within mammals, there are the venomous tarsal spurs, which are known in living platypuses, and there are there are um, non-venomous spurs present in echidnas, and there are spurs that look like those of platypuses and echidnas present in um, a bunch of Mesozoic fossil mammals mm -hmm. like uh, some, I think, Spalacotherioids like Zangiotherium and Multituberculates and a few other groups. So it may be that venomous tarsal spurs were quite widespread in mammals 
And if so, that's another instance of venomosity. So that, I think that's everything. So fossil squamates, fossil venomous snakes, uh, therocephalians, these stem mammals, tarsal spurs in metazoan mammals, and tooth grooves in uh, things like... um, uh, bison alveus, whatever that is, is some extinct group of paleogene placental mammals and fossil selenodons and relatives. Yeah, I think that might be everything. But so, unfortunately, the tooth groups are just pretty, maybe even hopelessly ambiguous as it yeah. for venom. So, yeah, you hopefully you hopefully find like th- say two or three correlates features that, that appear to be linked to venomosity. Yep. So you don't just have tooth groove, you should also have unambiguous venom glands or something. But some things that have been posited to be venom glands and are, are clearly not, the classic example being in uh, the theropod Sinonithosaurus, where a group of authors claimed that tooth grooves and cavities on the skull were indicative of venomosity and uh, and they're really, they're clearly not. They, they, these people just don't know theropods at all. They were pointing to normal features of the pneumatic system. Mm. Yeah. They also linked it somehow to the poison, poison plumage present in um, uh, Pitui's and other South American, uh, uh, Australasian, Australasian birds. But it was kind of vague as to everything. Everything they do is vague. That's that particular team of authors. Uh, oh. With all due respect to them, of course. It's been said there's in the the thanks to Jurassic Park, where you've got basically all dinosaurs are venomous. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you've got lots of nonsense has been said about uh, venomosity in living animals by paleontologists. I mean, Robert Backer wrote his Field Guide to Jurassic Park, published in Earth magazine in 1992, and that. In that, he defends a lot of Croydon stuff. And he says, now it's plausible that theropods would have evolved venomous bites because this is present in loads of animals today, including toads. And I'm like, what? <laughs> toads with venomous... <laughs> they're a venomous... Well, they're, no, there are poisonous toads. Poisonous, but there aren't venomous ones. And I don't need to say it to this audience, but of course everyone now knows that now, it wasn't always the case, but now poisonous and venomous don't mean the same thing, right? So... A poisonous animal like, has got a noxious chemical somewhere within it, and if you bite it, you'll get poison in you, whereas a venomous animal is able to inject a venom or a poison, and, uh, yeah, uh, it uses that as its weapon or killing thing. Yeah, I've there, there must be some sort of edge cases here, right? So mm. what does touching count as venomous? So no, that'd be poisonous. That's poisonous. What about little barbs when you touch things? So, for example, jellyfish, are they venomous? Well, they no, that's a good one. Yeah, see, they're technically venomous because they those are uh, those are like firing darts that are used. But uh, I should so they evolve from something which is clearly just well, it might be just touching, right? So you've just got mm-hmm. some secretion on the skin or something. I there's going to be things which are um yeah in an in betweeny be. state. Yeah. I don't uh, know about yeah, jellies, jellies canadarians, I mean they're they're give that up. Everyone knows they're not fish. And anyway, fish is not a proper term for anything. So what does it matter? 
Well, but that implies that. But you're you're saying that because you're thinking what calling them jellies is like a new thing. It's not. It's the same as sea stars. No, it's a pretentious thing to do. Is what I'm saying. It's like we scientists call them jellies. Yeah, sea jellies. Sea jellies. Jelly fish. There's loads of there's loads of books where you can find them in the fish section. <laughs> jellies have got their their firing cells are called nematocysts, and they're they're like specialized predatory structures. There's like a a, a coiled section, and when they're touched, they fire. So yeah. it's. I don't know the whole backstory, but I get the impression that they are specialised predatory structures. Oh, I'm not saying that they aren't in them, but what I'm saying mm-hmm. is that you can sort of see how mm-hmm. you'd go yeah. from something which is just sort of nasty to touch to something that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't buy that distinction as a. Well, it can be useful in talking about it, but I don't think we should get too hung up on that. It's like super important that we always distinguish. Well, it, it, it is in like your end members in like your modern taxa because there you don't have any shades of grey. Yeah. So, but I agree well, with you. Might there's probably things that we're not thinking of. Lots of invertebrates. Okay, but in terms of modern plants, parlance, it's plants. Oh, God, stupid non-tetrapods. So exactly, yeah. spikes. Spikes that um, are covered with something a bit nasty. This is very common in plants. You, they don't actually inject themselves in you, but if you prick yourself on it, that's that's bad. Are they poisonous plants or are they venomous plants? I'd say they're poisonous. Because they're not... I get your point, and I can't be bothered to go down this rabbit hole, but, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I sort of understand you, but I still can't think of a case where it applies. So they seem to be, yeah. Well, okay, let, let's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. just move. In. Come on, good old day. <laughs> okay, okay. This is from uh, Carlos Silva. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, we should say uh, thanks, Patrick, for that question. Sorry about all the tangents. Yeah, um, thanks. Uh, this is from Carlos Silva. Um, what if Mesozoic animals didn't grow to very large sizes due to competition with dinosaurs and other animals, but instead due to anatomical constraints like sprawling limbs and epipubic bones? All right, so do you want to start? No, you can start, because I can't, I can't remember what I said last time. Okay. Well, you don't have to be the same as last time. The last time doesn't matter. does to me. <laughs> Economy you can't of remember. effort. Okay, all right. So... Because so I said a lot about sprawling limbs in, and okay, my thesis last time. Sorry to interrupt you there, yeah. but just before I forget, yeah, I was saying that the fact that in many uh, non-Therian mammal lineages, the fact that the sprawling condition was probably the norm, would have meant that for many Mesozoic mammal lineages, uh, it would have been they would not have been as good at evolving large size due to that constraint. And then you argued that. So yeah. Go on. Yeah. So obviously anatomical constraints can, and indeed his, it, we know were overcome, right? Yep. So we know in some that, groups, in some groups. So we know that mammals can do this. Some groups can. Yep. But I would argue that, in fact, most groups can. Given the opportunity to, and this is where we, we often go into this when we get the, these, this form of question, is that if you start from a bad place, 
or even not a great place, and you've got to compete with a bunch of animals that are already there, you know, small and medium-sized dinosaurs, you just won't be able to break in because you've started from a, a place that's a little bit behind. It doesn't mean that you couldn't evolve it given fewer constraints, and indeed that is what happened in some mammal groups. Um, so it's not really uh, it's not really a constraint, more of a disadvantage or a handicap in respect to evolving, well, in this case, large body sizes. So I think the answer is it's both, right? Mm-hmm. It is. It's not a constraint. It's a. It's a disadvantage, mm-hmm. but it is yep. competition or competitive exclusion. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's good. So, I mean, but that's the nature of Carlos's question. There is is that the, the is it possible that um uh, uh sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, well, sort of thought experiment. What if you took a modern mammal, one that had upright, a smallish one, but had evolved an upright stance, right? Yep. And plonked it in the Mesozoic, or a few yeah. of them. Do you think they would outcompete dinosaurs, or do you think that they would be, would still suffer from dinosaur competition and maybe go extinct? I, I just don't see them as being that tremendously different from their Mesozoic analogues. For example, the modern Didelphis opossum in North America. Uh, that's often it. Often looks like a low-slung creature with like a crouch posture, but those of us who know opossums will know that they can stand like like they got really actually got really long legs, yeah. and uh, they can stand and walk fully erect. Um, and yeah, that animal isn't that different from like Mesozoic metatherians, non-Mosuba metatherians, and the members of, of these of these other groups. And I can't see what is it that's different about the modern ones from the Mesozoic ones. Well, really, not much. I don't know. They're going to be in pretty much. They're going to be living the same way and interacting with other animals in the same way, preying on the same things, living in the same habitats. Um, there isn't anything that obviously makes them like you know better at surviving or better at reproducing or better at rearing babies. I guess I was thinking more along the lines of rabbits, small deer, something like this. Take them back. But they are, to be fair, they are quite big compared to the majority. Even the rabbit is compared to the majority of Mesozoic mammals. Sure. So. We know that there's a handful of big Mesozoic mammals, like beaver-sized and Tasmanian devil-sized animals, but the majority really are like mouse-sized, shrew-sized things, aren't they? Yeah, really small. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, but I guess I guess this the 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 thought experiment here is whether if you had already evolved upright stance in the Mesozoic for whatever reason. Would that mm. actually give you enough competitive advantage with dinosaurs? Um, mm. Yeah. So you know, it's a way of removing also, removing the the um, yeah that particular uh, constraint or disadvantage. But yeah, this is hard because the modern groups you're thinking of are weird and specialised. Yeah, so a rabbit, a rabbit isn't just a generic small animal, is it? I mean, right. it's like an 
it's like it's an excellent borrower and it's got this phenomenal ability to like run really fast and leap and stuff which isn't the case again in mesozoic mammals and deer yeah. you know any any artiodactyl has got a whole set of features that that weren't present back then they hadn't they hadn't evolved i still think i you disagree with me but i'm going to say it again mm-hmm. i still think that for most of these lineages they are in, they are they are okay you're right that mammals in general have the capacity to evolve large size and erect gates but that if you look at all the lineages on the cladogram that only evolved within like this like large size and fully erect limbs and stuff it evolves within theria the groups that the group that includes marsupials and kin and percentiles and kin but all those other lineages they don't seem to have gone in for that they do seem to have been constrained to uh, like small size and sprawling and it's it's vague and it involves speculating mm. wildly about you know possible evolutionary trajectories but it, it looks to me like these options weren't available to these these animals like when we discussed whenever it was when we were talking about uh whether birds would evolve to the size of whales yeah the the the, the thinking there is that well there's no reason why they would need to because they're making a perfectly good living as bird-sized creatures yeah. even in a world devoid of whales there's no reason why petrels or penguins would stop being penguins or petrels and i think that's this well that could be the same thing here it's like these small groups they work well at small body size but they don't necessarily we don't know that lineage like multiverculates or uh uh, uh Zangiotheriids or Spalacotheriids or whatever. We don't know that they've got the evolutionary potential. Yeah, I guess the the pressure there's probably pressure, evolutionary pressure to evolve large body sizes for things like grazing, isn't there? Yeah. So yeah. um they are there are niches which uh, there sorry, niches is the wrong word. There are, there are sources of food that are much better exploited by big animals than small ones. Yeah. And therefore, you would expect to get... If the if the world was devoid of those big animals, you would expect to get those big animals uh-huh. evolving because there's, there's food there. If you can get there, that's great for you. Whereas I think with the whales and versus uh, the birds, they're eating the same food, right? The birds are efficiently or relatively efficiently exploiting that food resource. Um, the whales have got a different way of doing it, but they're both eating that same food resource. Whereas, you know, to eat low-energy plants, you need to be pretty big. Right. Relatively so. (sighs) So... As uh, good as... Yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on. Well, there might be other constraints, like what their their normal diet is, right? Mm. Um... It's not a constraint. I keep saying constraint, but their whole lifestyle is not geared towards something that evolving body size is a good thing for, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if you're a small tree dwelling animal living on like insects and, well, maybe nuts and things like this, um, evolving bigger and bigger body size is not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and that's and that's a fine lifestyle to have being small and eating nuts and season things because obviously there's millions of animals still doing it today so um right do you think that'll do on that that'll do that'll yeah sorry it's a bit vague and arm wavy carlos but um yeah so so i kind of think yes i think that anatomical constraints played some role in this uh, but it's 
Mm. But I wouldn't say constraint. I would say you know, the, their starting position is bad mm. for mm. evolving mm. body size. So yeah. But then, but the, but then the counter argument is why leave it, even though it is bad. It's like there's no reason for them to move out of it because because another thing. Well, they moved the, out like, of it when those huge big. Um, yeah. Well, some did. Yeah, some did. They didn't all, oh, did they? Because you know what? How? What's the average size for mammals today? It's 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 like you know most mammals are rodents, right? Yeah. So um, we we mustn't think that. Mesozoic mammals were failures because they didn't evolve into dinosaur-like giants. They certainly weren't. They were they were great at doing what they did, and they were very you know there were lots of them, and they diversified substantially. And that's not a bad thing, you know. No, nobody nobody today thinks that just because you don't evolve giant species, you're not winning the game of evolution. Of course, mm, I think they but, pretty much do. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you win at evolution, isn't it? That's how you win the game. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Okay, so do you want to do another one? We've been going... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, I want to try and cover as many as we did last time. There's another two or so, wasn't there? Uh, no, that's all the ones we did last time. That's not... No, you're wrong. We did... We did 116. I distinctly remember it. And 116. Yeah, and we did 114 as well. Oh, okay. No, we didn't. Yes, we did. We definitely didn't do that. We didn't do 114. We did do 116. Okay, so let's do 116. So I was half right. Yep. And we did half of 116. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what the hell we're talking about, you don't need to know. No. Okay. All right. So this is from Isabel Walsh. Again. Um, Let's do the first half. Oh, it, yeah, yeah, that's the reason. Part. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Did the, we did the first half, not the second half. That's why I didn't mark it down as done. Okay, so she says, I'm not a scientific literate... Sci- no, sorry. <laughs> I'm not literate <laughs> no. at all. Me no literate. <laughs> Me no literate, good. I'm not a science literature. <laughs> literature? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as clever as John, who can't oh, read your question. I'm not as science literate as most of your listeners. She says listeners, not actual. Ah. So there we go. Really more at the planet Earth type level. I'm trying to learn more, but every time I try to read technical papers, my eyes glaze over. You didn't say the word type in there, whatever. Ah, whatever. Okay. (laughs) Are there any stepping stones you could recommend? So, um, first off, technical papers, yeah, they can be really boring and lots of people's eyes glaze over. Um, So that's not really unusual. But you go ahead with your part of the answer in it. My my part of the answer was that a good way to introduce yourself to key concepts, key terminology, etc., an introduction to the literature is. Uh, f- f- but don't ever get the impression, listeners, that those of us who keep up with the technical literature have it all at our fingertips and can just infinitely access all of it and love reading it and are surrounded by it. Um, because, <laughs> <laughs> looks around library because many of us, you know, it's difficult for it's often difficult. It's often difficult for us to get it, obviously less so today than it was even just recently. But uh, but most people don't read technical papers for fun. Most, a lot of people don't read technical papers at all. And a lot of technical papers are indeed really badly written. And uh, no one's like a particularly a fan of jargon or particularly complex constructions. Um, so one of my suggestions was that um, a good introduction is textbooks. 
And there are several very good textbooks. Obviously, it depends specifically on uh, – well, Isabel does not specifically state what she what aspect of zoological knowledge she's thinking of. But I was saying there are several really good textbooks that introduce one to vertebrate zoology. So Lindsay's Vertebrate Biology, uh, I think that's what it's called. Uh, I do recommend very highly good introductory level book on everything about um, – uh, ecology, biology, behavior, anatomy, and uh, and not really, really boringly tedious. It's got like interesting anecdotes, and it's written in a good way. Um, John, not John, oh, oh God's sake, um, Alcock's um, Animal Behavior is really good for animal behavior. Uh, Jean Vier's Early Vertebrates is really good on early vertebrates. Oh my God, that's a fish book. What have I done? <laughs> uh, sorry, it's just because I'm using it right now. Um, yeah, so 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 textbooks is one recommendation. Then John says, "Yep, <laughs> I totally can't learn anything like that. Um, yep, uh, even if it's reasonably well written, um, I find this just impossible. This collection of facts going in that I immediately forget. I have no memory. I think it's part of my problem. Um, the way I do things is that I think of something that I really want to know, some sort of." small splinter idea and try and really dig at it and find out what the arguments are on either side. And um, so I followed more train of logic. Why do people think this and other people think that? And for that, often you don't actually really need the technical literature, which can be incredibly difficult to read. And if you're not planning to be a scientist, you might not ever need to really do it. I mean, there are some papers that are worth reading some are some are well written some are very easy to get but um yeah i i feel like just trying to dive into that is not a good way to learn (laughs) so you know even just like reading things up reading up on wikipedia often you find that well why do some people think this and other people think this and you just follow the links and you you end up learning a lot of terminology by following people's arguments um uh so the logical structure of arguments about biology is what how I learn um, a lot of the terminology. And for this purpose, there's often what I find really good is reading the comments on things because people are back and forth on things. You can often get the form of the arguments. I mean, this is increasingly rare on the internet where you can find uh, <laughs> civil reasoned arguments. <laughs> <laughs> on two sides of anything but you still can you know there are still things you know sometimes in um tetsu blog comments um sometimes you find things in wikipedia talk pages uh forums are still a place where people do this and argue reasonably about these things so i guess it depends on what how your brain works if you're more of a fact collector then uh, mm. maybe start with a with a textbook. If you're more of a um, like me, what would I call it? An argument is how I understand things. Then maybe consider things like following the arguments on Wikipedia or finding a forum. And that can be a really great great way. Actually, is finding a forum and getting involved in the discussion yourself and you know, maybe taking some opinions don't even necessarily agree with and trying to argue for them. This is sort of, this is a really useful way of um, embedding 
terminology especially rather than a series of facts but terminology what's going on in biology why are people arguing about the things they do this is a good way to learn so now that you say this it reminds me that uh, back in the day when i was first learning stuff and first collecting the literature so i mean i'm talking about pre-internet days and in the days when i was literally collecting piles of you know photocopies from local libraries uh, university libraries. So I'm talking about trawling back through new scientists, nature science. The th- one of the, my favourite things was uh, I would often collect the scientific papers themselves that I was interested in, but then I would follow the chains of correspondence that resulted. And uh, pre-internet days, this is, as John said, this is not so much a thing now, but um, uh, it was it was quite easy to like. The, one of the best bits of technical publications were the letters pages because people were disputing or arguing the specific ideas, the specific terminology, and you would get a, a sense from these chains of correspondence what the particular areas of focus and disagreement were, and uh, sort of what we agree on. Yeah, we agree on that, but then you know people expanding on the stuff they didn't agree on, and and uh, those are still some of my favourite publications. The uh, the letters that result correspondence that follows the publication of a of a key thing which makes me think that john's argument has got something to it something 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 yeah the fact yeah the fact that we we do learn well from this yeah um and i guess the reason or learn good i should say learn good gooder even um (laughs) so (laughs) yeah i guess what was sort of lacking is where you actually go to find this i mean i say wikipedia but a lot of wikipedia pages are bad and a lot of the, um, I mean, a lot of them are very good and a lot of um, parts of Wikipedia that are well policed, if you like, are mm. good places to go. But often when you find you're a bit into the weeds on some sort of argument about um, a particular thing in biology, you find that the pages start to break down a little bit. They're written from one point of view or just written by someone that doesn't really understand it. Um and I'm just, I wish I had a better uh, recommendation. Like, uh, forums can be really good. Then I get into um, subjects which aren't my specialty. Uh, this is often what I try to do. Find a forum where people who, you, you know, they're generally sort of semi-professional forums. You might get people that professionally work in there occasionally, but a lot of enthusiasts Um now, they might be a hotbed of misinformation, so it's important <laughs> not to <laughs> think that yeah. you're collecting facts in these forums, but you are collecting arguments, and they, are, they generally do reflect the sorts of arguments. If you find the right sort of forum that go on in the scientific literature, it really helps with terminology um, and concepts. Uh, so that would be my recommendation. Try to find a forum in the, in the thing you're interested in. Try to make sure that it's... It's decent people writing whole sentences, um, this sort of thing, <laughs> um, and and follow follow the arguments. I think that's a great way of doing it. Yeah. So, but I I absolutely agree with John, but I still do think that the kind of like the university answer that you'll get from like a formal academic is is look at textbooks. So um, I still think I still think you sort of have to promote that. And like I said, there's a there's a few that are particularly good, and maybe this just does come down to learning styles i mean i've kind of learned from diverse sources i'm not i'm not sure i have learned what i know from textbooks but i certainly haven't found textbooks to not be useful i have found that yeah i mean they're very useful for looking things up too if you do need to know a fact right yeah they often are 
or the broader sort of opinion on this sort of thing or the context in which some some argument takes and place. And may, maybe, yeah, so maybe specifically mentioning textbooks is bad because if you are thinking of a specific group of organisms, I mean, there are fantastic books on many groups that are, you know, yeah. a, a must-have reading because uh, they don't just tell you the, uh, the facty stuff, but they also um, have a, like, researcher on the ground perspective that you don't get any other way yeah which uh, and it annoys me when you get a specialist book and it doesn't have that it's like did yeah. you just did you just write this book by like sitting down in the library or did you do you actually know this group of organisms and i guess that's another thing to say getting to know even a relatively small group of organisms really well and getting to understand a lot of the arguments that go around those a lot of those things are transferable to other groups right so mm. if, if, even if you're only interested in, the, in a tiny amount of something, um, mm -hmm. it will teach you so much about general ideas and biology and um, what's going on that you can, you'll find, oh, well, I can, yeah, I can apply this knowledge to all, all sorts of different groups of animals. It's the same arguments go on frequently from group to group. So don't feel like you have to... If you're not a fat collector, like I'm not, don't feel like you have to go and read about every single freaking group of animals out there, um, if that's not what you want to do. And you can concentrate really hard on a very small group, and you will learn a surprising amount that you can transfer to other groups if you become interested in them later. Yes? Yes. Yep. Although the risk with that, of course, is that sometimes people are so used to a small group that they... They think things are constrained when they aren't, you know? They think that such some things are impossible when actually, no, 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 there's this other group of animals that does this all the time, right? Absolutely, yeah. So you've got to be a bit careful of the myopicness of certain research areas um, and enthusiasts in those areas, yeah. All right, is that answered then? Yep. And uh, we'll come back to the second part of your question, Isabel, on another day, because there's only so much time that we have to do this, unfortunately. And thank you to everyone else for the, the there's now a substantial backlog of uh, caches for questions. And, um, and oh my God, have you looked at the Tetsu podcast email account lately? Just, no. just don't, just, <laughs> just pretend you don't know it exists. <laughs> Just kidding, <laughs> listeners. We'll uh, we read all your messages and we'll, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll we'll yeah we'll there. Uh, so we'll get back. To, we'll we'll deal with all those things in time. But time is always against us. Yeah. It sounds quite from a movie. I'm sure it is. They say time is the fire in which we burn. <clears throat> and I had I don't want to be late. Um, <laughs> okay, so we shall finish ish with the, briefly, the uh, news from the world of news, which okay. normally we have up front, but yeah. let's have it up back instead. Just quickly, okay, two-minute rule. Keep your eye on the clock. Two-minute rule didn't work on the cash for questions. It's not meant to. Um, is it not? No. No, oh, I thought it was better if I could answer them in less than two minutes. But uh, these, 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 dis these things, I just want these. These are all relevant to stuff we've um, covered before, or personally relevant. 
there's stuff that's yeah been discussed in the podcast before how's it going on the two minute rule um so we've mentioned caperia the pygmy right world before and we mentioned the fact that there was a study saying it's a cetothere that is the living member of a otherwise extinct group of baleen whales and then there was a study coming out there's a study that came out on a particular group of fossil baleen whales in which caperia wasn't found to be a cetothere and there's a well so much for that fine idea there is a paper that's just been published in plos one uh, so it was in like uh, September-ish, October-ish of 2016. Uh, Marks and Fordyce, a link no longer missing new evidence for the cetothera definities of Caperia. And this was an analysis of a fossil called Myocaperia and showed that it's literally a massive, massive air quotes, missing link <laughs> between uh, uh, fossil cetotheres and extant Caperia. So further strengthening of that link. Yes, Caperia is indeed a living cetothere. Um, really cool papers also in PLOS One by Jeremy Klinger on tracheal and esophageal displacement in birds. The fact that in birds the trachea and the esophagus as well apparently is like not present along the ventral midline, but it's actually over to one side. Don't ask me which side, I can't remember right now, and I don't know if it's consistent either. Uh, Klinger showed that it's present in all birds, which is one of those basic things that nobody had ever bothered, like drawing all this together before and analysing all the groups. It's present in all birds, and it's also present in some crocodilians, um, but not all. So what does this mean, and is there any way we can infer its distribution, the distribution of tracheal and esophageal displacement in uh, extinct uh, dinosaurs? Interesting question. And what does it mean? Why do they have displaced to the side? And I don't, don't know if anyone really knows. Is yeah. it something to do with just packing, like where things can fit in a neck of that shape? So, yeah. Maybe it's got to do with where it, you know, enters the lungs. It just tends to displace it a little bit and it doesn't matter. Maybe. Yeah, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it's not under um, selection to for it to be. Well, yeah, who knows? And, of course, some birds it slips to the side in the when they fold their neck, right? So maybe there's an, yeah. an advantage there that it's got it always slips to one side rather than jamming up against the front or something. I'm thinking if you want to have a very shallow neck, it would obviously be advantageous to be able to slip it over to the side. Jakob hmm. um, uh, Vinter and Bob Nichols and colleagues, they've published their uh, study of the, the, the camouflage pattern in that Cetagosaurus with the quills. This is in current bulgy. I think it's open access. And, of course... I now feel that we've like been overexposed to this Sidax. It's not that that's the bad thing, but obviously we've just, John and I and others have just seen it at the Dinosaur Days event, and we had it at Tet ZooCon. And of course, yeah, the actual model, and we had Bob speaking about it, and amazing stuff, fantastic. Uh, they they, they not, don't just have the quills, but the colour pattern of this animal and mm. uh, identification of the patagial flap on the hind limb. Which, to your credit, you've been talking about since all yesterdays, which is why the proto... Look at Triceratops in all yesterdays. John Conway was the first person to notice this, I think. Uh, obviously, he went a little bit too far in putting it on all Ceratopsians. Well, just to put it in. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's a cool paper. And also on the subject of Mesozoic dinosaurs, uh, we've been talking a lot about this paper by... G. Kang and colleagues on the discovery of a small lower Cretaceous ankylosaur from China. It's called Lioningosaurus, and it was described back in the 90s. And uh, one specimen, 60 centimeters long, weird ankylosaur. But this new paper, the authors say that they've got a specimen that's got fish preserved as stomach contents. And so, on the one hand, you've got people saying, well, 
Not such a big deal, really. We've been thinking that lots of Ornithischians might have been omnivorous or might have eaten animals on occasion, and so what? On the other hand, you've got people saying, uh, well, I don't, and this is what I would say, I don't have a problem with that idea, perfectly happy with the idea that some ankylosaurs might have eaten fish on some occasion, but what I'd say, and maybe even this was a fish-eating specialist, which is really weird, but, you know, certainly not implausible, uh, but the fact that they did such a bad job in the paper of actually convincing you this is for real they've got like one photograph the size of like a a big postage stamp photographs like a couple of centimeters square and uh doesn't convincingly show that there are fish in there doesn't convincingly demonstrate that their stomach contents procured during life and not fish that swam in there and got stuck which sometimes happens with dead bodies but i don't know i'm 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 more than happy to accept it i just wish they demonstrated it better and curious thing about the paper is they also say they've now got, they mention this specifically, they say they've got hundreds of specimens of this dinosaur, Lyoningosaurus. Mm. So, wow, we have the potential to have lots more information on this weird little armoured dinosaur. There are a million other things. Oh, driven grouse shooting. I wanted to talk about that because that's now all the rage. Um, I so, love my grouse shooting. Right, so the, the there's here in the UK there's this famous event called the Glorious Twelfth, twelfth of August. Feathery where little bastards. <laughs> a bunch of rich people stand in a field and they shoot the red grouse as they're as they're beaten by beaters. They're sort of scared out of the foliage. And um, this is a multi million pound industry and a huge amount of uh, resources are put into this and it brings in a lot of money to the areas in which it occurs and you could say it's got you know it's a tradition and, and it's not a bad thing and it should continue on the downside of things it involves intensive heavy management of these heather covered moorlands so in order to keep them as these grouse moors they have to burn them they have to because they need the heather to be uh, short and with like you know fresh sprouts of the grouse like they have to remove any trees and any rainwater has to be gotten off the hills as quickly as possible so they've got all these like special sluices and things to get the water downhill and all the places where there are these uphill uh, upland grouse moors it's a suspicious coincidence that all the areas like immediately adjacent down slope <laughs> now all suffer chronic massive flooding mm. there is no effort to keep the um the rainwater in the hills or to allow it to soak slowly into the ground as it should that's one issue major environmental issue uh, also there's the burning contributing to carbon costs and such but also the management in terms of getting rid of animals that firstly compete with the grouse competing browsers and secondly predators of grouse these animals are managed is the wrong term because they're not managed they're eradicated so the people that manage these grouse moors they go out and they shoot all the in particular mountain hares so this is a native british mammal that lives in the same environment feeds on the same stuff as the red grouse does but they want to get rid of these hares and they kill truckloads of them and i'm not exaggerating you if you are interested in this google it you'll find loads of images online where people maintaining grouse moors have killed like hundreds and hundreds of mountain hares at a time this is not okay it's like a native mammal and they're basically pushing it to the brink then there's the predatory birds and also they kill foxes and um badgers and stuff as well because they uh, you know predate on grouse also but they also eradicate predatory birds including golden eagles hen harries in particular uh, peregrine falcons and uh, the when people have tagged and studied predatory birds for other reasons they're not studying them because of the grouse 
more management. They're studying them to study them. Um, the birds, the hen harriers, the eagles repeatedly go missing in the same areas, in the same managed grouse moor regions. And in some, we're talking about like 30 predatory birds going missing over the space of like six years in the same like specific plot of land owned by a specific landowner. So an ornithologist who used to work for the RSPB, Mark Avery, he wrote a book, a book even, book. <laughs> it's called Inglorious, Inglorious Conflict in the Uplands, and it's about grouse, the whole grouse moor industry, and basically the case against it and why it should be. He wants it banned. Now, I'm always a little bit uneasy with the idea of things being banned outright, but I don't think it should be banned. I certainly think it should be, like made significantly less of a thing than it is uh, because there's a really strong case here this is a, a pretty the the case the response case is ah oh, come on hunting's not that bad and it's like yeah hunting's not that bad don't ban hunting hunting banning hunting is often silly um but this the case against this from the environmental perspective the impact on other wildlife the impact on endangered species locally endangered species of course like hen harriers is and this is being there was a signature which closed in uh, september uh, 2016 got over 120 signatures which doesn't sound like a big deal really 120,000 signatures is that what i said you said 120 signatures which i <laughs> very much Oops. good catch good catch <laughs> got over 120,000 signatures which okay my point is that still isn't much given how many people there are in the UK or people in general but it's big enough for this to be debated in parliament and as of today the 1st of November 2016 year of our lord um it is being debated in parliament i think possibly today now of course we all know what politicians will say about it uh well actually i don't know i wouldn't like to say but Many of the many of the grouse moors themselves are owned by politicians <laughs> and uh, by people that run newspapers like the Daily Mail and the Express and stuff. So um, they have no vest, they have no vested interest in this whatsoever. This is a conspicuous problem for so many of these issues. Although, okay. whenever there's a group, there's a counter group. So, right, um, there are people that want to get at the people that own the own the grouse moors for other reasons and that they can use this to beat them over the head with so you never know you yeah. might get your result even if they don't care that much and i don't think all nice politicians issue. are bad yeah so there are some politicians are actually okay and uh, of some of them are in it for the right reasons but uh, there's others others are not we didn't discuss new scientists live we're not going to discuss it but uh, there was an event uh, also earlier this year new scientists live which was pretty impressive i gave a talk about dinosaur life appearance and what we currently think um, and that was, and they had like like crazy stuff there, like robots and the world's fastest car and um, giant life size. Uh, what was that car called again, Darren? <laughs> the Slow Pig. Bloodhound. It was called Bloodhound. <laughs> slow Pig. <laughs> right. Look at this. Look at this. Uh, yeah, horned armadillos. Okay. And. And, and rafting monkeys. Yeah, this is Darren Croft's book, The Fascinating Fossil Mammals of South America. Feast your ocular organs on... Like, look at this. Okay, uh, okay. I've already said some cool. stuff about this. I'm going yeah. to review it on Tetsu, but... Mm. I mean... 
Uh-huh. Well, it doesn't matter which picture. I'm, I'm thinking, should I choose a picture that looks particularly good? They all look yeah, pretty good. They're good. But, so who's the artist? Uh, uh, I'm going to embarrass myself by not pronouncing their name correctly. Velazar Simonovsky. Okay. Simeonovsky. Velaz, Velazar Simeonovsky. Here, how would you say that? Velazar Simeonovsky. Yeah. Simeonovsky. Yeah. And so this this book, I've I've known Darren, Darin, uh, D A R I N. Uh, I've known Darren for years, and I've known he's producing this book for years. And yes, he has done us proud. He has produced the goods. There are so many fossil mammal books where you think, oh, this should be really good. It could be about all those mammals, fossil mammals that you never hear about, mm. and they all turn out to be a bit of a disappointment, not mentioning any names. Mm. Whereas, <laughs> but this, no, oh my God. I mean, look at that, look. Reconstruction of this slight Scolidotherium. And can you see what the picture shows? Not really, it shows, it's a bit dark with reflections well, like, on it. Okay, if it shows a mother and baby reclining inside an underground den... Uh, there's, there's the art is innovative and brilliant. Look, there's a predatory big armadillo that's eating some eating some of the mammal, Macroeuphractus. Uh, it's it's great. So this wow, look at that. This is a, pa- a couple of pages on. So it's not just mammals. No, oh, yeah, page an cool. Andalgalornis, the forest yeah. rakid. Uh, so very high production values. Uh, very strong text, very good coverage. We have like species by species. I, I haven't yet worked out. Um, I think they're done on f- the basis of faunas. It's well known species from faunas. So it's not everything, but it's the better known ones. And uh, the art is amazing. The text is very well written. So consider that a ringing endorsement um, uh, published by Indiana University Press. And it's only just out. It's $50. What's it called again? Horned armadillos and rafting monkeys. Okay. Good. The fascinating fossil mammals of South America. So, wow. I will be reviewing it on Tetsu if I didn't say that already. All right. Let's wrap this guinea pig up. (laughs) Patreon, 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 Patreon. Do you know what we spoke about last time and we haven't covered this time? No. The fact that I want to rejig Patreon, my Patreon thing, mm-hmm. so that people are paying for the production of Tetrapod Zoology. And this, and how I did this last time is like this. Stop doing that, Darren. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, okay. Is anyone from Scientific American listening? Looks left, looks right. Yeah. No. Tetrapod is currently hosted at Scientific American, but they're not very good. <laughs> I want to leave. But unfortunately, I'm reliant on the money they provide. So what I want to do is transfer the payment to somehow. You know, once, I, once I get that covered elsewhere, I can leave them because I'm sorry, they haven't delivered on any of the stuff that I regard as, in, as important for a blog. And uh, Yeah, we should say um, that most of your issues are sort of technical you know the way the blog looks and how it acts. You know comments and things like this is, is well, the yeah. main problem with them. Because um, being associated, with it's them not is that good. they're nasty people or anything. Like no, no, no. That. On the contrary, yeah. I mean it's it's uh, they're great and they've done good. Yeah. But it's just like it's just not what I want. It just doesn't deliver in terms of yeah. what I th- as you say how a blog should look and how it should perform. So so um, 
yeah, people should help you out with that by supporting you on Patreon. Right? Yeah, thanks and to those who do already. If I hate you to ask roughly double, right? Yeah, your mm. patrons, then you can do it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, get in there. Now's the time. Yeah. So thanks to everyone who supports us already. We don't. You know, to those of you who already give us money, you know, we don't. We're not asking you. We're talking to the, the others. <laughs> 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 and John's on Patreon as well. Yep, patreon.com forward slash John Conway. Your patreon.com forward slash Tetzu. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got a, a bunch of affiliates. We've got a new look uh, Tetzu.com page with where the podcast is hosted, as well as uh, the uh, kind of uh, stuff. And um, yeah, okay. Okay, Twitter. I'm on Twitter at I saw I saw sitting in the clouds at Tetsu. <laughs> I'm at the John Conway. That's it. Okay, bye. <laughs>